This is Damien from New City, Orlando. I recently sat down with author and speaker Jen Pollock-Michelle to talk about longing and belonging in the Christian life. Those themes relate to Jen's two books that are available now. And we had a great conversation. We want to provide you with the whole conversation, but because it was so rich, we've now broken it into two sections. In the first section, we talked about the connection between longing and belonging in the Christian life, and what does it mean to be the type of person who welcomes others in. So we hope you enjoy part one of a two-part podcast with Jen Pollock-Michelle. Jen, it's good to be with you. We've talked on a couple of occasions, but never in person. Yeah. And so I'm excited to have a conversation in person and uh, to go through these questions. And it's great we get to record this one because in the past, I felt very (laughs) blessed by our conversations and no one else got to hear them. I know. We should have just recorded that phone call. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So you're here to speak at our women's retreat and you graciously have given us this time too to talk about some of your work and talk about what the Lord's been teaching you. Yeah. I'm really excited to be here. Now, I've read your work, but some people haven't. So for those who haven't yet read any of your books, and if they would have, they would know a little bit about you. Mm. But for those who are listening who haven't, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. So I'm arriving in Orlando today in the heat and humidity from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So I'm like, oh, that's right. The southern United States, it's really hot. I'm actually American, um, born and raised in the Midwest, kind of all over. My husband and I met at Wheaton College. And... um, We lived in Chicago for a long time until about seven years ago. God called us to Toronto. We thought we were going for maybe two or three years, and that has turned into seven, and hopefully will be a lifetime. We have five kids. Our oldest is off to college next year, Hmm. which is crazy. Um, So we have three high schoolers and two um, twin boys that are in fifth grade. Okay. Three high schoolers, you said? Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. (laughs) Well, I mentioned the two books, at least you've written two books that are published. Yes. So you have another one that's coming out next year, is that yes, right? Yes, next May. Next May. Mm-hmm. So are you, is the draft off? It's finished, yeah. I And then, of course, I had somebody talk to me on Twitter this week about, did you cite this particular person when you're talking about paradox? I'm like, shoot, <laughs> the copy Always. is in, it's in. You know, I can't talk about Kierkegaard now, but. <laughs> oh, dang, that's great. Well, the first two books that you wrote, the first one was on longing, and the second one was on belonging. Yes. And I'm wondering, is there a connection between the two? There absolutely is. And so there's kind of a fun story here. I was actually going, um, I was with a small group from my church in Toronto. They were reading my first book, Teach Us to Want, and they wanted me to come um, just kind of talk to their group as they were finishing uh, finishing up the book. And one of the guys um, said, I noticed that this last chapter for Teach Us to One is called Ruby Slippers. Mm. And that's sort of a, obviously an allusion to Dorothy making her way back to Kansas. And he said, so that leads perfectly into your second book, Keeping Place, which is on home, you know, because Dorothy is putting on the ruby slippers trying to get back home. And I was like, absolutely, you know, which was totally not intentional. Huh. But I was telling somebody the other day, I feel like when you write a book, um, at least this has been true for me. You start out with a curiosity and you finish the book with just new curiosities. Mm. And so to write a book about desire, I mean, of course it was like, what are my most kind of fundamental desires? And it's the desire for home. And Mm. so that's the second book, Keeping Place, is just about this desire to 
have a home, you know, and, and I mean that in the largest sense of the world, word, you know, a, a place where you're recognized and embraced and mm. received and known and loved and mm. safe. And so, yeah, to talk about his desire in that first book automatically just kind of led to the desire for home. That's great. So why do you think it is, as, you, as you've thought about this and you've reflected on your own desires and this core desire of home, I think people resonate with that, mm. which is obviously why you wanted to write a book on it, which is why someone wanted to publish the book and why it's doing so well and people are reading it and benefiting. So as you thought about it, why is it that human beings long for belonging and home? I mean, I think it just goes back to the garden, to be honest. You know, I think it goes back to the story that we have in scripture that tells us, you know, how it all began. You know, it began in a place where we were known and loved and received and recognized and safe um, and where we had a very good father, you know, and we yeah. were his children and embraced by him. And so I feel like the human condition is the longing for that paradise lost, Um and I think that's the, the beautiful thing about Christianity mm. is the explanatory power that the gospel has, that it makes sense of our most fundamental longings and griefs even. You know, mm. I think of home as not just as a longing, but a, a real grief even for all of us. Yeah. Whether or not we've grown up in the same place or whether we've, you know, like me, moved, you know, our whole lives I think all of us feel like C.S. Lewis, I guess, sort of describes it like we're sort of on the outside of a door that we've always longed to mm. enter into and open. And um, yeah, I feel like that just takes us back to the garden that, you know, God made a place for his people and um, we were exiled from that place because we chose um, not to surrender to his authority. Mm. But the good news of the gospel is that home is a promise that God hasn't given up on. And we can look forward to the end of the story, which was really just the beginning again. Mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So as you were writing Keeping Home, what were some of the more poignant um, or the things that stick out to you still as you reflected, whether they be insights, whether they be stories from your own life where you saw how God was redeeming that grief that you mentioned in mm. your life and calling you back home, almost like the, the prodigal son calling you as now and said, out mm. of the far country, back home yeah. to the father. Can you tell us about any of those things even now that stick out to you as you were writing that book? Yeah, I was originally, when I was writing the book, I kind of imagined it sort of along that creation, fall, redemption sort of narrative, um, yeah. you know, that we had a home and that we lost it and then God's redeeming it, redeeming it through Christ and we're going to reclaim it, you know, at the end of time with him. But I felt like something was like really missing. I was like, but, you know, it's sort of the, the tension of the now and the not yet, you know, knowing that our story, where are the stories going, but living in this not yet environment, like what is the story of home in the not yet? Mm. And the metaphor that I use in the book is um, the metaphor of the housekeeping. And I think it, to me, sort of, um, I guess, provided another angle when we think about desire. Okay. I think we often think about desire and longing as just kind of, yeah, like the things that we want, the things that we feel like will make us whole and satisfied, and so much about home is about that. But not only thinking about what are the things that I want, but what are, like, if this is a human longing, what's my role and responsibility to provide welcome and home for other people? Mm. 
And so this idea of the housekeeping, and it comes really out of, it sounds crazy, but I think it started to kind of coalesce for me around um, the suffering servant in Isaiah. Mm. This idea that, you know, Jesus was sent into the world to do the work of salvation, but it was like an act of housekeeping. You know, you had, he did it with his body Mm. and he did it with his death and his suffering and sort of this idea that none of us really wants to do the work of home, right? We all want the benefits of home, but we don't necessarily want the work of it. And so um, that's kind of where the whole second half of the book turns. And I, and it, it's something that I continue to return to when I find myself sort of like, I think feeling maybe um, disappointed in certain situations, like, ah, oh, my longings aren't being met here. I have yeah. desires that are unfulfilled and sort of like, but what's my work in this relationship? Mm. What's my work in my church? You know, what, um, or what, what kind of conception do I have of the world? You know, that there is just, there's home, the longing for home, and that's all the, the beauty of the, um, I guess the, the ideal that sort of held out to us, but the housekeeping, like, is the way of getting there, mm. if that makes sense. And yeah. so being the hands and feet of Jesus, like, here would be just a really simple example. I went to this, um, school event last night. Okay. My husband was working late. I, of course, show up alone. And I don't, you know, nobody likes to show up alone at an event. And you're sort of looking at the room like, oh, dear God, please, somebody talk to me. <laughs> Some people wouldn't, actually. I know. Some people look at it the That's other way. That's true. My They're husband... Like, oh, dear God, don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to anybody. The introvert, like, no, yeah, I'm totally an extrovert. So I want to talk to somebody. And this woman kind of came up and just was chatting a little bit. And I just decided, okay, you know, and I said, what's what's your name? And we started chatting. And, and this is also Toronto where this, you know, people are very politely distant, okay. you know, so it's not necessarily kind of something that you would do that you would just strike up a conversation and, and try to talk to somebody. But I did, we were chatting, we found out that our, we had kids that were in the same grade. And at the end of the night, we ended up sitting next to each other. And at the end of the night, she said, you know, thanks so much for, for providing a welcome for me. And I thought, that's the work, that's it, right? Mm. That's the work of the housekeeping. I came to that event and I wanted somebody to talk to me. But really, God was actually calling me to just talk to somebody else who mm. also longed for welcome. And so when I think about the desires that we all have, the desires to belong, mm. the desire to be safe, the desire to be known, you know, to believe that every human being carries those desires is to actually, like, we need to look outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then not just think, how can I fulfill these desires, but how can I meet these and other people? Mm. And that's being the, that's, you know, kind of taking on the work of the suffering servant sometimes, mm. often. That's very good. That's so helpful. I love that story. Mm. That's amazing she used that language. I, when she said welcome, I thought, no, that's exactly, that's the work, right? That's the work. I mean, God, that's the work of what God did in creation. Uh. You know, I really believe that as we look at the the acts of creation, God's making a home for his people. And then on day six, he welcomes them, them in. It's like, this is the crescendo. This is the climax. I, I've, been, I've been nesting. I've been preparing a home for you. And this wasn't just a razzle-dazzle, like, wow, this is so cool. And look, I can make the sky and the earth and the dry land. Like, no, it actually had a purpose. It had the purpose of welcome and um, to, to really th- see God's work in that way gives us a language for seeing our work in the world. Mm. I think that's really helpful because my sense is that, you, and you make this point in the book, that this is, in a sense, it's not a book for women. That's one of the things you yes. say in, the I think, the introduction mm-hmm. or toward the beginning. 
And this is this is something more than that. This is this is beyond that. And you just rooted it in exactly why it is. Yes, it's because it, it's rooted in the work of God and what God did. Mm-hmm. So, can you speak a little more to that? Uh, particularly, let me give you a scenario. Sure. Um, if a if a, a person were to come to your book, which has all of these wonderful themes that you're already mentioning, that are absolutely relevant to all of us, and they said, "Oh, this this is judging it by its cover. This is for women." Yeah. How might you engage them and, and push back on that? Oh, that's such a tricky question. Well, first of all, it's like, oh no, is, does the cover look like it's for women? <laughs> um, it kind of does. I know. I think I've, it does. I know. I've already, I had a workshop earlier this year, a panel discussion with people in the publishing industry, like how do we interest um, men to read women's books? And, you know, a lot of men were saying it's the cover, you know, the cover communicates kind of a feminine quality and... So stay tuned for Surprise by Paradox, my next book, because I am convinced that the cover is not feminine. But um, yeah, I think it takes a really big case. I actually think, well, one of the approaches that I take in the book is to talk historically about how we've thought about home, Um, that it hasn't always just been like a a sphere for women, Mm. that prior to the Industrial Revolution, men and women were both at home. They were working at home. They were raising the kids together. And one of the interesting things that I found in my research is that um, a lot of the sermons in colonial America, when they were about parenting, they were directed to the men. Wow. And actually some of the cookbooks and um, home like housekeeping manuals at that time were also written for men. So Amazing. we kind of make this assumption that home is sort of the purview of the woman. And really, historically, that doesn't hold up. And I, But I think, you know, so we could sort of take that tack, like let's look historically. Um, but I think... To just do it theologically, you know, to really say, could we look at, for example, the acts of creation as an act as acts of homemaking? Wow. And and what would that enlighten? You know, what would that illumine? And I think what it illumines is this affective quality of God's work in the world. You know, I, I mean, again, like go to the book of Isaiah where God talks about himself as a woman writhing in labor for the salvation of his people. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't allow us to kind of see salvation as something sort of impersonal or mechanical or transactional, but to, to use the language of home and relationship and even mothering is to bring this like deeply emotional quality to God's work. And I think that's the most robust way of looking at it, you know, and I think maybe we're afraid sometimes to bring kind of emotional dimensions to um, our theology, but I think scripture does. So let's embrace the yeah. language of scripture. And that's what a really big thing that I want to say in the book, and especially for um, pastors and male leaders, is to say, listen to your women as they read the scriptures, yeah. because they're actually they're they're finding things and noticing things that you might not from your own kind of male experience, and similarly, women from men. And that's the beauty of the body, right? Yes, yes. Of the complementarity that yes. uh, that happens when men and women are reading together and studying and bringing their insights together. So, um, yeah, I've, I have I have a long-standing kind of um, 
I don't know what the word is. Um, yeah, when men preach on the uh, on Mary and Martha, I get like really frustrated because I'm like, somebody's got to please say that Martha wasn't just a terrible person. Yes, seriously. <laughs> you know, like the whole like you know valorizing Mary, Mary. You know, and 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 yes, Jesus says she chose the better thing. But you know what? I, the question that I'm always asking at the end of that story is, but who was supposed to be making dinner? Yeah. That's you know, because question. that was an incredible act of hospitality. Like to set a table for people is an incredible act of love and service. And the fact that we have our, the gospel is, you know, we enact that every week in a meal yeah. means that there's this incredible, um, there's a sacred quality to, to, to setting a table and importance to that. So that would just be an example where I want to say, you know, um, as a person who prepares most of the meals in my house, I come to that story very differently than my husband, whose four recipes include chili, um, breakfast burritos, peanut butter and jelly, of course. And I don't know. He's he's adding to it because he's taking one meal a week now recently. Okay. But <laughs> that's great. Even he would get tired of the same four things on exactly. those nights, you know? Totally. I would. That's fantastic. <laughs> So let me do one thing. Thank you, Sunday. All right, can you go up? Sure. Okay, it's the same. I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Thank you for saying that about the need for complementarity in mm-hmm. in all things and and the public reading of scripture and the the way in which men and women both read it differently. Mm. I, I really appreciate that. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. You're welcome. I hope I said that word correctly. Complementarity? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I don't hope know. I said it correctly. If I didn't, then you can just take it out. I will. I'll have Joey take it out, if in case. Same with me, if I say anything that's really awkward. Okay, so I actually, I want to add a question that's not on here, because you mentioned this uh, a second ago. And and it was almost in passing, you said, none of us really want to do this work of making a home, Mm. but yet we all want the result. So for you, as you've come to see that perspective, but also you've come to see the beauty of homemaking mm-hmm. in the way in which you described it earlier, um, using God as the, the standard, the source, and cr- the creation itself. How have you seen yourself change in that desire to make a home? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm asking? Yes, I I'm not do. exactly sure how to say it, but yeah. if, you, if you see it, have, have you or how have you grown in first recognizing, you know, if I'm honest with myself, I, I too want the benefit, but I don't want to put in the work. Yeah. But as you've written this book and done this thinking and had conversations with lots of people since you've been writing and researching this, how have you changed and, and what would you offer to us if when you said that it pierced us and we said, yes, that's so true. Yes. Me. That is the single most important life-changing lesson from my book. And I could give a lot of different examples. I think that I have tended to be the kind of person, especially having five children and twins kind of surprise at the end, <laughs> like finale, woo! Um, you know, my move, my kind of general posture in life is, oh my gosh, life is already complicated. So anything that's um, going to complicate my life further, I'm going to run in the other direction. And sometimes that's legitimate. And sometimes it, I think what I realized, it was an act of um, sort of abandoning the housekeeping, if you will. Mm. Like, I don't know, for example, like I used to get frustrated um, with little mechanical logistical things at home. Like, 
um, I was happy to set a meal. It wouldn't really be around like meals and stuff. It would be like, oh my goodness, it's time to register the kids for soccer. And feeling so put upon that, you know, it wasn't working or this was taking longer instead of saying, you know, this is part of the housekeeping. Mm. This is part of loving my kids is just, you know, enduring the kind of monster for them for soccer irritation rather than away from it or, mm. or not um, abandoning things simply because they're frustrating mm. and recognizing that, they're, that, that there's something that's always kind of going to be inherently frustrating um, about life and work in this world. I mean, yeah. it, it would be in my domestic life. It would also be in my professional life. I would um, always sort of feel like imposed upon to have to answer email, for example. Okay. Yeah. I don't like answering email. I write all day long. I don't want to answer long, you know, don't. And I recently got an email from somebody that was so incredibly thoughtful that you could tell that this time, this person had put time into an, this email to make it meaningful, to really communicate. And I thought that was, that was actually such an act of love. Mm. I think that was an act of the housekeeping. Nobody wants to answer their email. Yeah, I think <laughs> and, that's right. And we all want to do it in as quick and effortlessly, you know, effortlessly as, as we can. But I just think sometimes moving towards those places of complication, frustration, um, things that feel exhausting. I think our, our um, drive in kind of modern life is, oh, life is already burdensome. How mm. can I eliminate burdens in my life? Yeah. Instead of saying, you know, to be a human being, to be committed to relationships with other human beings automatically entails burden. Yeah. It means that when my friend gets sick and it's a busy week for me, you know, I don't really want to make her dinner that's part of the housekeeping. Mm-hmm. And that and it's it's here would be another example in my relationship with my mother which has been difficult which has um you know as we all you know kind of experience I think in one way or another maybe emotionally dissatisfying instead of you know sort of holding back like well you know um sort of giving up hope for that relationship like moving towards the places that are hard and carrying the housekeeping, you know, like showing up when she's in just recovering from a surgery, when that's the last place I really want to be. Yeah. So I think I think it's a challenge to the things that feel right. Huh. I think that's that. I think often we're sort of um, we start to believe that doing God's will will feel right, mm. that it will deliver on kind of a sense of satisfaction. Instead of saying, no, you know what, to do God's will involves housekeeping. And that means it's going to feel like vacuuming sometimes. <laughs> it's going to feel like unloading the dishwasher. Like, mm. are you kidding? Do I have to actually put these dishes away again? That's right. Yeah, you do. <laughs> every day. Yeah, every day. Yeah. The, the word you used was burden. And yeah. I think my mind went to, to, to do this work of making home is an act of love mm-hmm. and love requires sacrifice. It mm-hmm. requires burden. And I was, we're, we're going through Ephesians right now and I'm preaching this weekend, chapter two, 11 through 22, which is right after Paul gives the beautiful by grace, you've been saved through faith and you've been raised with Christ and seated with him, all of these things. Now he's going to say there, there's another way that God's resurrection power works and it breaks down the wall of hostility mm. and it brings about reconciliation. There used to be two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, but God has come in Christ 
through a loving sacrifice mm. to bring those who are far near through the blood of Christ, of Christ, but also those who are near. And now since we both need that access uh, through Christ's love and sacrifice, now we're, we're one people. But yet it's so interesting in mm. Acts 15 at the end when Paul and there's this, the, 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 the council, the first council of the church is trying to figure out how they're going to deal with this reality that Paul later on, a few years later, speaks in Ephesians. And they, they decide, well, circumcision doesn't need to happen, but they're still struggling, I think. I'm reading into it a little bit, but trying to figure out. Mm. But something, something is missing. And they come up with these three seemingly random things, yeah. except, you know, don't eat blood, don't eat uh, meat with blood in it, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, and one other I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm. And I've always thought to myself, why those three things? Yeah. And I've just never pressed in. And I learned this week that, it was because if they were to practice those things, it would have broken table fellowship mm. with the Jews and the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, in terms of their relationship with God, their, their cultural, they weren't Jews and Gentiles, but, but they are different cultures. Yes. And we still experience that in lots of ways in, in our life. And so, to, to practice true hospitality, I think, to make home for those who are different than us, even if we are one in Christ or not, it will exacerbate what you're talking about, yes. I think, this this sense of dying to self mm-hmm. in order to take on the burden of loving them. Mm-hmm. And and that really is what it was to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. It was they were putting a burden, mm-hmm. but it was an appropriate burden because it was the burden of love. Yes. I've been thinking about this for my book on paradox, you know, that it is an incredible paradox that, you know, Paul would say, um, you know, in Romans that you can obey your conscience, but all, that you always have to obey the command of love. Mm. You know, that's something that you may think is totally right and fine. If your neighbor doesn't, don't do it. Mm. That's a burden that yeah. we carry. We're, and, and I think it pushes back against this kind of idea of being such autonomous individuals mm. that, you know, I... I, I, I get to do what I want, right? I, and don't, I deserve to do what I want. I deserve want. to do what yeah. I want. And if you infringe upon my rights, you know, that's, 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 that's wrong. Yeah, maybe the worst type of wrong. Yeah, and to, to accept the burdens of relationship and the burdens of Christian unity is, is a surrendering of your rights. Mm. That's very countercultural. Very countercultural. And I, I mean, goodness, I mean, I struggle with it every day, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to be talking at the women's retreat about Jesus taking up a basin and a towel. If I, your teacher and Lord, would do this for you, you ought to do it for one another. I don't, mm. and, and you know, Philippians too, right? Yeah. Not counting equality with God as something to be grasped, a laying down of the rights and taking up the burdens that don't, you don't, that you don't deserve, right? That is the cross. Thank you for listening. The second part of this conversation is also available on iTunes or at newcityorlando.com.